Hi everyone. Okay, so there's a lot going on in today's episode, but here's the main takeaway that you ought to know. By the mid-1950s, Israel's security establishment is divided between two types of people. The first are the activists. They believe that the Arabs only understand the language of force, and that aggressive response to acts of violence are required to ensure Israel's defense. The other group are the moderates. They agree that Israel's defense has to be strong, of course, but they emphasize diplomacy and restraint. They believe that retaliation isn't effective, doesn't deter Arab attacks, and instead only earns Israel the world's moral outrage. Now, I'm not going to tell you which side is right, but I am going to tell you which side wins the argument. What we're seeing here today is the beginnings of Israel, the nation state, trying to work out how to deal with terrorism, a problem that has never gone away. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. There's a lesson to be learned from making peace in the Middle East that no one really talks much about, but which I think has played a major role over the decades. In 1951, King Abdullah I of Jordan was assassinated in Jerusalem by a Palestinian. The Palestinians were angry at the king for his occupation of the West Bank in Jerusalem. So, yes, Israel is not the only country to have occupied the Palestinians. But the Palestinians were especially angry at the king's efforts to make peace with Israel, a peace which would have prevented an independent Palestinian state from ever emerging. The lesson is that in addition to all the other barriers to peacemaking which we're aware of, every single leader is aware that making peace with the other guy might very well cost you your own life. Abdullah learned the hard way in 1951. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat will learn it too in 1981. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin will learn it in 1995. All were gunned down by their co-religionists, and they weren't the only ones. King Abdullah's peace effort didn't fit in with Israel's other Arab neighbors, or the Palestinians, who refused to acknowledge that the 1948 war was either over or that Israel had won. And so Israel found itself dealing with, after the war, a daily infiltration of Palestinians and other Arabs across its borders. The vast majority weren't threatening, let's be clear. They weren't armed, they weren't looking to cause violence, they were often engaged in smuggling or stealing crops from Israeli fields or just looking to reunite with family members still in Israel. Still, Israel found the situation maddening, as any country would. But in the 1950s, armed incursions began to increase, and so did violence. Israel simply could not tolerate that. What country would? The wrecking of this Israeli train near the Jordan frontier is an example of the serious tension that now exists between the two countries. Luckily, no lives were lost in this grave incident. Israeli villagers living close to the border are now being trained in the use of arms by regulars. And with reports of raids and counter-raids in this area, there's always the fear of such incidents leading to open conflict. A peaceful settlement about standing differences is obviously very urgent. In the early 1950s, the action was mostly along Israel's border with the Kingdom of Jordan. It was a back-and-forth conflict between Israel and mostly Palestinian infiltrators coming in from Jordan, although sometimes Jordanian soldiers or police also participated. The infiltrators became known as Fedayeen, an Arabic word meaning self-sacrifice. They attacked from Arab villages just over the line on the West Bank, 
crossing the border to sabotage equipment or kill a few Israelis, and then sneak back over. Israel would retaliate with its own raids across the border, kill a few Palestinians, and on and on this went, the tensions steadily increasing. It's hard to pinpoint any particularly awful attack as the straw that broke the camel's back, but in October of 1953, Fedayeen made their way several miles into Israel's interior to the town of Yehud. There, they threw a grenade inside a home, killing a woman and her two children, one of whom was an 18-month-old baby. The outrage burned so hot that Jordan immediately offered to join the Israelis in tracking down the murderers. The Jordanians were nervous that Israel was about to unleash a major retaliation. They were right to be worried. The murder in Yehud of the woman and her two children came in the midst of a growing debate in Israel. A debate which remains exceedingly relevant today. How should Israel respond to terrorism? Now everyone agreed that a legitimate government must be able to control its borders. They also understood that a Jewish state in the Middle East faced unique challenges. A robust defense is required to communicate strength. Israeli officials agreed with the cliché that their hostile Arab neighbors only understood force and that to continue tolerating the Fedayeen would be a sign of weakness. Where they disagreed, however, was just how to retaliate for the Fedayeen attacks. The activist wing, those who were pushing for the maximum retaliatory response, they were led by Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan is one of our warrior gods from season two on Zionism, a rising star in the Haganah, the pre-state Israeli army. He famously lost an eye fighting against the Vichy French and wore a black eye patch the rest of his life making him one of the most recognizable Israelis. He made a name for himself as a commander during the War of Independence and later took part in the various armistice agreements, including with Jordan. Since the end of the war, he had advocated a policy of collective punishment. He insisted that retaliation against Arab villages for infiltration would cause the Arab civilian population to turn against the infiltrators and would pressure the respective governments to tighten up their end of the border. The Israeli historian Benny Morris writes that the policy of retaliatory strikes had three main objectives, revenge, punishment, and deterrence. But many Israeli officials disagreed with retaliation. They argued that it didn't actually deter attacks, collective punishment was unjust, and that it made Israel look bad in the eyes of the world. This camp, the moderates, they were led by Moshe Sharet, the foreign minister. He held to the policy of Havlaga, or restraint, which had been the pre-state policy in dealing with Arab attacks. Of course, Israel must be strong, he argued, but that applied morally as well as militarily. But the murderous attack in Yehud in October of 1953 gave the activists the upper hand. A few months earlier, a special IDF team was put together called Unit 101. Their task was to aggressively carry out reprisal raids against the Arab villages where the Fedayeen were coming from. Unit 101 was led by a young soldier who had already earned reputation as a combative warrior. His name was Ariel Sharon. You might remember Ariel Sharon from earlier this season. He was severely wounded during the battle for Latrune in the War of Independence. 
Under direct orders from David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Dayan, Sharon recruited 50 experienced soldiers, mostly from agricultural kibbutzim. It was believed that soldiers from a farming background had the necessary spirit to really fight for their land. To get into Unit 101, you not only had to pass all the intensive training requirements, but the other members of the unit got to take a vote on whether to accept you. Unit 101 was armed to the teeth, and Ariel Sharon was given his orders. Make the Arabs pay a heavy price for attacking Israelis. The tiny village of Kibya on the Israel-Jordan border is in ruins, as day survivors relate how troops from Palestine struck across the frontier at night. They accuse Israeli forces of leveling buildings with grenades, shell fire, and explosives, trapping entire families in the rubble. The attack prompts the United States, England, and France to deliver their sharpest rebuke to Israel since its founding and to demand stern action to punish the guilty troops. The night after the Yehud murders, Unit 101 was sent to raid the Palestinian village of Kibya. Kibya was a known base for Jordanian fighters and also Fedayeen. Late at night on October 14, 1953, Israeli soldiers attacked the village, which is just inside the West Bank, not too far from Yehud. A battle broke out. The Israeli army went house to house tossing grenades to cause maximum damage, dynamiting buildings, and generally laying waste to the town. By dawn, 69 Palestinians were dead. The majority of them were women and children. Ariel Sharon, following the orders of his commanders to attack Kibya, later claimed that he didn't know the houses were empty, which is highly doubtful, and that had he known there were still women and children in the town, he would not have ordered such an aggressive attack, which is probably more truthful. Nevertheless, the attack on Kibya was intended to set an example. Ben-Gurion wanted the Arab world to know that Israel wasn't playing games, and that there would be a heavy price to pay for murdering innocent Israelis. Ben-Gurion got that reaction, but he also got another one. Domestic and international outrage. Unit 101 was a top secret unit, and the raid on Kibnya was secret. But when word got out, the world was quick with the condemnations. So were Israeli government officials, most of whom had no idea about the operation. Moshe Sharat was the foreign minister and leader of the moderates when it came to retaliatory policy. He had urged against the raid when the idea was first raised. Ben-Gurion then didn't inform him that it had actually been carried out. As for the Israeli public, Ben-Gurion tried to cover the whole thing up and pretend that what happened in Kibya wasn't the Israeli military. On the one hand, Israelis generally supported retaliation as part of a policy of a strong defense. Retaliation boosted morale. It made Israelis feel a bit less vulnerable in the face of terror that can and did strike anywhere at a moment's notice. But their tolerance for retaliation stopped at the indiscriminate killing of innocent civilians. Even amongst the activists like Moshe Dayan and Ben-Gurion, who felt that a strong response was justified, there was a sense that Israel couldn't afford too many Kibya massacres on its conscience. Moshe Shart had a good point. Eventually, we're going to want to make peace with these people, he said, meaning the Arabs. For that to happen, we can't go around killing them willy-nilly. And so the massacre at Kibya had the effect of changing Israel's retaliatory policies. Ariel Sharon's Unit 101 was disbanded after about a year. No longer would the army go attacking villages. From now on, it would attack only military bases, since plenty of Fedayeen raids were staged out of there. Of course, that brought up its own challenges. 
The army didn't face a lot of resistance when it attacked civilian sites. Not a single Israeli soldier was killed in the raid on Kibya. But military bases have soldiers and weapons, and if Israel starts attacking those, then IDF troops will no doubt be killed. And that's exactly what happened. Now there was a cost of retaliation, not just a moral prestige, but in Israeli lives. Suddenly Israeli soldiers started dying, compounding the tragedies of the murderous Fadayin tax to begin with. So we can see how from the early years, Israel faced almost no good options in dealing with terrorism. There was a downside no matter how Israel responded. Not responding at all was unthinkable, but it was impossible to find a response that didn't come at a high cost to Israel. Whether it meant its soldiers getting killed or the world condemning it or the Arabs retaliating for the retaliation or simply the expense and exhaustion of the constant pattern of terrorist attack followed by a retaliation, followed by another attack, and so on. This is a problem that continues to bedevil Israel to this day. In the meantime, Ben-Gurion appointed Moshe Dayan chief of staff of the IDF, the highest ranking officer in the army. But the next day, Ben-Gurion announced his resignation as prime minister and Moshe Sharet stepped in as Israel's second prime minister. For the time being, the moderate ring seemed to have gained an edge. And then something tragic happened. On March 17, 1954, a bus was driving a load of Israeli tourists through a narrow, windy road in the middle of the Negev Desert, called Scorpion's Ascent. Terrorists ambushed the bus and murdered the driver while his wife watched. Then they murdered her, and systematically walked through the bus, executing people. When they finished, they heard the sounds of a young boy crying out, so they came back and shot him too. There were only four survivors. Israel now had a choice. The immensity of the massacre at Scorpion's ascent begged for a powerful and ruthless response. But the confusion about who exactly carried it out forced a pause, and Prime Minister Sharet opted for restraint. For the first time in a long time, Israel did not respond to the attack. Now let's be clear that Israel's restraint to the Scorpion's ascent massacre can't be credited with changing much. It certainly didn't deter future terrorism. Moshe Dayan was of the view that without retaliation, terrorism would be much worse than it already was. And frankly, he was no doubt correct. But we can also argue that Moshe Sharet's policy of restraint did slightly improve Israel's image on the world stage, though that was a small comfort for the public traumatized by constant terrorism. Once again, we see that Israel didn't have a lot of good options. The attack at Scorpion's ascent went down as one of the most infamous acts of terrorism in Israeli history one that left lasting scars in the nation's psyche. Meanwhile, by the mid-1950s now, much of the Fedayeen action moved over to the Gaza Strip, which was controlled by Egypt. I talked last episode about Egypt's new leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who took over in a coup. He had no love for Israel. He vowed to reverse the humiliation of the Arabs in losing the 1948 war by crushing Israel, and his rhetoric was increasingly bellicose. There were attempts made to broker a cold peace between Israel and Egypt, but neither side could get there. Israel was unwilling to make large concessions due to security concerns. And remember what I said before about assassination. Ultimately, said Nasser, he didn't want to share the fate of King Abdullah for making peace with the Jews. 
So the mid-1950s saw increasing Fedayeen attacks from Gaza into Israel, and the terrorists were aided by Egyptian intelligence and its military. Every few days, Jews were attacked and killed, their fields and infrastructure sabotaged, their towns made unsafe. Israelis, especially those along the frontiers, felt utterly vulnerable, and this was intolerable. Once again, Israel found itself in the same pickle. Retaliation was both necessary, but also seemingly ineffective. An incident which may well have grave consequences has occurred at Gaza on the borderline between Egypt and Israel. According to Egyptian reports, Jewish troops attacked across the armistice line and laid an ambush for Egyptian reinforcements. Lorries bringing these reinforcements were then blown up and machine gunned. Israel hotly denies this story. Israel's version of the incident is that Egyptians attacked one of their patrols and that the fighting continued into Egyptian territory. In February of 1955, the Fedayeen murdered an Israeli civilian out riding his bike. One of the terrorists was directly connected to the Egyptian military. By this time, Ben-Gurion had come out of retirement to serve as Minister of Defense, and he and Moshe Dayan demanded an immediate response. Prime Minister Sharat was less convinced, but agreed. The IDF launched Operation Black Arrow, led by Ariel Sharon. On February 28, 1955, the IDF attacked an Egyptian military base in Gaza, killing 38 Egyptian soldiers for a loss of eight Israelis. It was a huge defeat for the Egyptians and for Nasser. And once again, Israel faced condemnation from the United Nations for what was criticized as an overly aggressive act. And once again, the retaliation didn't stop the terrorist attacks. Now Egypt and Israel began striking each other, in addition to the Fedayeen raids. Outside Tel Aviv, terrorists murdered five children and their teacher at school. The Israelis were going nuts. Ben-Gurion came back as prime minister, Moshe Sharat was out, and the activists were once again on top. Retaliation was back in vogue. Kibbutz Nachaloz, a small community of a few hundred residents, sits right on the edge of Israel's frontier, a few hundred meters from the border with Gaza. It was founded in the early 1950s by a unit of soldier farmers who established border settlements to both maximize farming land and also provide the border with some built-in protection. When the soldiers left after a few years, Nahalos hired a security guard. They found 21-year-old Roy Rothberg, a soldier who had served in the War of Independence and who settled at the kibbutz, married, and had a child. On April 29, 1956, Roy Rothberg saw several Arab infiltrators stealing crops from the kibbutz's fields. He chased them down, but that was the point. They were the bait of an ambush by Fedayeen, including an Egyptian policeman. Roy Rothberg was shot, beaten, shot again, and his dead body brought across the border into Gaza. Later that afternoon, it took the United Nations to have his remains returned to Israel. By coincidence, Moshe Dayan had met Roy a few days earlier and returned to Nahaloz now to speak at the funeral. His eulogy has gone down as one of the most famous speeches in Israeli history, like Israel's Gettysburg Address. He cast the ulterior blame away from the Arabs' burning hatred of the Jews. 
For eight years, he said, they have been sitting in the refugee camps in Gaza, and before their eyes, we have been transforming the lands and the villages where they and their fathers dwelt into our estate. Instead, he said, Israelis needed to look inward, and specifically at the failure of the kind of diplomacy advocated by the moderates in the government. How did we shut our eyes and refuse to look squarely at our fate, and see, in all its brutality, the destiny of our generation? The people who lived at Nahal Oz, he said, had been forced to bear the burden of violence, but had been forgotten. Taking a shot at Moshe Sharet, Diane said that the ambassadors who call on us to lay down our arms are guilty of malevolent hypocrisy. It is a fallacy, he argued, for Israelis to keep being tempted towards restraint. He described it as the fate of the present generation to face the loathing of hundreds of thousands of Arabs. This is our life's choice, he said, to be prepared and armed, strong and determined, lest the sword be stricken from our fist and our lives cut down. It was Roy Rothberg's yearning for peace, said Diane, that diverted his eyes from seeing the murderous ambush that was waiting for him. It was a powerful speech, and it spoke to the uncertainties, vulnerabilities, and resolve of the present moment. I told you at the beginning that I would tell you who won the argument between the moderates and the activists, those who advocated for an aggressive defense versus those who encouraged more moderation and diplomacy. It was, of course, the activists, like Moshe Dayan and David Ben-Gurion. At the end of the day, Israel's harsh policy of retaliation didn't do much to deter acts of terrorism, but it did send a strong message of Israeli resolve, boosted the army's fighting capabilities, and firmly established Israel's place in the Middle East. Moshe Dayan later explained his reasoning. Are we justified in opening fire on the Arabs who cross the border? Will this stand up to moral review? It may be that this cannot pass review but I know of no other method of guarding the borders. If the Arab shepherds and harvesters are allowed to cross the borders, then tomorrow the state of Israel will have no borders. The ultimate result of the Fedayeen attacks and Israel's retaliation was to dramatically raise the tension between Israel and Egypt to the boiling point. In 1956, Israel wasn't just looking at terrorism across the border. It was looking at war. As I frequently tell audiences, don't make the mistake of thinking that the main players in the Arab-Israeli conflict are the Arabs and the Israelis. In 1956, Israel found itself smack in the middle of a Cold War struggle for power, one that Israel knew posed a dire threat to its security. Israel found itself considering a counterintuitive response. We know a war is coming, and it might be better to just get it over with. Instead of trying to prevent a war, they said, we'll provoke one. The music today is Yehuda Poliker, Gevatron, and Ophir Ben Shitrit. Coming to you from Lockdown Bay Area, California. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later.